Good evening. It's good to be here with all of you. Good to see some of you haven't seen for a long time. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now when Jesus taught us from the Sermon on the Mount... He really raised the bar for us pretty high, didn't he? Especially as this passage that we have here as it pertains to our topic, honoring all men. So if you'd like to go with the journey on me this evening, I'm going to try to spend the next 40 minutes or so looking for a loophole. And now I can tell you, this is kind of a spoiler alert, because I, I don't think we're going to find one. So it actually might be to our benefit to see just exactly how the Lord expects us to apply that in our day and time, just like He has intended for every day and time that preceded us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we have a fairly simple exhortation. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And again, as I look for a loophole, I really don't find one. So what I really want to do is I want to find the legal term of honor to see if I can find some slack in there. And that word honor is tomeo, which means to fix evaluation upon. Well, that would be okay, except it goes on to tell you not just to fix evaluation, because I can fix a low valuation, but it goes on to say, to by, uh, by uh, implication, to regard or to set a high value on. So the call is for us to honor all men, to honor the king to set a high valuation or a high esteem on them. And I think verse 17 is very interesting, and I, I, I don't know why it's structured like this. Didn't spend a lot of time trying to answer that. But it says, honor all people on one end, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's as if he put that fear God in there as a balance so we didn't get too out of whack with our honoring of all men. And I think there's some justification to that. That word fear is in the, in the Greek is phobio, like phobia. Have a fear of God. Have the righteous fear of God in line with what we're looking at here. Now, I'm not a man of a great deal of phobias, I don't think. I don't necessarily like heights where there's not a railing, and I don't think I'm necessarily fearful of the height. I'm fearful of the fall from the height. <laughs> so I'm doing okay. 
But I do have kind of a phobia when it gets up to the edge of the Grand Canyon. And I do handle that with a great deal of reverence. I do handle that as if there is a great danger to stepping beyond what I should with that. And I think that that's the attitude we should have towards God and towards the things we say and do about with God. And even as we apply it to honoring all men. Peter says that there's a place that we can relate to the lost world like he did. And as Christ demonstrated, within the parameters of our liberties and within the definition when it's been established is our faith as bondservants of God. There's a place where all godly men, women, and child is patterned by Christ and his apostles can operate, but there's also a place wherein we draw a line and we don't step beyond and we must defer and refer to the Master's plan for everything we say and do and respond. Jesus appealed to the religious of his days, to his physical ancestors for reason, Put it, pointing to them to the plan that they had in their possession and attempted to get them to conform to that plan. They preferred their structure. They preferred the things that they were used to. And they, and they failed to utterly uh, to recognize that the system that they were in was in utter shambles. It was literally a set for ruin. Eventually, Christ um, did all he could for them. And they did all they did to Jesus as a result. One good shake was all it took to bring their temple system of worship down upon them because it didn't have a foundation on which to stand. And Jesus left them to it. Eventually, as the church was established, Christian Jews insisted on modifications to the plan, bringing in things that they deemed to be essential. Most of the New Testament is refuting those things. Later on, men from other walks of life come in reasoning and rationalizing and using their influence to bring other new intended things into the church as well in an effort to bring it down to the people. There's a line in a song that I heard a long time ago says, I think they call it apostasy. And that's exactly what it is. From the early generations of mankind, we find the tendency to disregard the authority and sovereignty of the great I am in pursuit of something to call the great you will be. I've used that line before. And if they can't find it, they'll make it for themselves, carvings and images of mind and of matter. We look at this from our presumed accurate understanding, and we wonder how things could get so messed up, but they are. And finally, we think we have a clear understanding of the one true God and His Son, and we wonder again how they, they got so messed up. Many face, after many centuries of steadfast, even dogmatic practices, some of the most rigid doctrines that we can imagine, right or wrong, today are crumbling, as pressures to remain relevant slowly prevail upon weakening leadership within these organizations. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, we say, we hear, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's interesting in that, that short little sentence that there's two qualifiers there. Where it says, if it is possible, and as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Well, brother, I'm here to say that it's neither always possible, 
nor does it always depend on you, if we've reached an impasse over the ordinances of God, his design for the church, or his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. The persistent enemies of truth have successfully weakened the undergirding of many faiths, many of which were built on sandy soil in the first place, with demands to bend and deflect and to be more tolerant with the world around us. Doug Twardell and, and, my, and me had a conversation about my topic a couple weeks ago, and after a brief discussion about it, he reaffirmed what I felt this lesson should really be addressing. So if I've missed the mark, it's, it's Doug's fault. <laughs> but what we really need to consider, I think, this morning, with our allotted time, is Christian tolerance. I think tolerance is what we're talking about here with regard to honoring all men. I find that typically those who promote something called tolerance generally have an agenda and they seek to either abolish, absolve, or advocate acceptance of something that they personally want to pursue. That's typically it. But honoring all men or accepting their standards in our time will be utterly impossible as no man on earth is authorized to override, thus saith the Lord, to accomplish it. If somebody requires that you change your mind, you bend your principles, or you abandon your position, it had better be defendable from the scriptures. And if that is deemed intolerant, then so be it. Now, don't, un don't misunderstand me. Tolerance is an essential part of life. God, in his perfect design, has built into just about everything that exists the ability to tolerate far more than we generally realize. The laws of physics are laws which God has established to command behavior and the environment of all things created. They can be challenged, they can be managed, but they cannot be violated. Engineers and scientists, they spend the best part of their time taking into account tolerances of the materials and the things that have to be put into construction. This is obvious when we see the results of so many catastrophic events that are a part of our human experience. The earth will shake, the waters will rise, the flames will consume, the winds will swirl, the planes will fall, the cars will collide, and the epidemics will spread. These events will bring to light the weakness of any design and show in catastrophic terms, the limits of man, plant, animal, and machine. Bridges, highways, tunnels, buildings, automobiles, aircraft, spacecraft, medicines, social infrastructure, all are dependent upon the tolerance of what goes into their makeup and into their design, and devastating results often result when those factors are miscalculated. We are celebrating the 35th anniversary in this area of the Hyatt disaster this week, I believe, where 115 or so people died from standing on a catwalk that gave way. Poor engineering. Generally, everything must be designed to withstand movement and weight and temperature and pressure and weather and other often unique extreme uh, environmental influences. These tolerances are different and depend on the type of structure that some machine is being designed for in its specific use. The results are often disappointing 
when the properties that are essential for the uh, specific design are underestimated or worse, they're overlooked. My son Zach back there, he's a civil engineer, and I hate to call him out, but it's a joke with us, or it must be, because he says, when in doubt, more steel and concrete. (laughs) Now, we all know that sometimes too much rigidity is just as disastrous as too much flexibility, don't we? But I understand the the man builds foundations. (laughs) You want your skyscrapers to sway a bit in the wind. You want them to. But you don't want your tunnels to flex. At least I don't. (laughs) You want downforce to keep your car on the road. But you want lift to keep your airplane in the air. You see, these are all factors that have to be overcome and have to be, be built into the design. Generally, things are not designed to stay in their full flex or in their full sense of their full uh, uh, ability to tolerate whatever it is. They're meant to be able to tolerate it and come back. Twist a little and come back, not stay in that. That's not what the things are usually designed for. They return to a nor- uh, to condition enormously. And all structures and all machines and everything in the world around us requires that we have maintenance and inspection to make sure they're operating within those tolerances. Failure to, to identify and adequately, inadequately um, address cracks and leaks and holes and bulges and opens and sparks and friction, they can all lead to the kind of c- catastrophes that, we've, that we read about and we see in so many places. Theoretically, almost anything can last indefinitely as long as we take care of it. As long as we, 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 we address fatigue and wear and tear and exposure. But neglect, misuse, and abuse almost guarantees failure at some point in time. Remember, we're talking about tolerances here. God has graciously and masterfully designed our human bodies with similar tolerances and conditions and and, and considerations. This is an amazing organism. It's amazing. Mankind might be able to build something that looks like this, but I don't think he can build skin that can grow hair through it yet. And I don't think he can build something that when it breaks, that it's going to heal itself. That's amazing. It is an amazing organism, and it has more abilities than any machine you've ever seen man build, any claws he's tried to put on a man. And it can bend, and even your bones can bend. So it's an amazing organism. It has tolerances that we don't even always consider. We can reasonably endure a wide range of temperatures and impurities in our food and water and impact and injury to our bodies and our organs. There's a persistence of germs and nasty that's trying to kill us all the time. I don't know how many kids walk by me and put their hands on me on the way by. I love the kids. But we can flex without breaking. We can chill without freezing. We can burn without crisping. We can fast without starving. We can feast without bursting. We can hold without leaking. We can fall without shattering. And we can spin without fainting. But only to a degree. Then we have our limits, don't we? With man, it's rarely a good sign to have the wrong characteristic in the wrong place, isn't it? Hard bones are good. Hard arteries, bad. 
Sharp mind, good. Sharp pains, bad. Thick skin, good. Thick mucus, bad. Bulging muscles, good. Bulging disc, bad. Low cholesterol, good. Low blood count, bad. And you get it. We're going to try to apply all these to the Lord's body here in a minute. I hope that we've set a foundation for that. We tolerate many adverse conditions. And we can. And it's an amazing thing that we can, but only for a period of time. And only to a breaking point. If we don't do something to address it. If we neglect it and we let it go, it leads to something catastrophic. Does it not? Every stage of life is designed with some element of stress or strain or pain and suffering. We generally circumcise the poor little guy when they're first born. I think it's payback for labor pains. I almost think I can remember that day. Then there are teeth and earaches and bruises and scrapes and growing pains and sore muscles and then childbirth for the ladies. Again, payback. Sickness, surgeries, and then if one is blessed to live to old age, the, the, old, the pains of old age. Then there are emotional tolerances that have been factored into us as well. Wounds that can't be seen. Broken hearts that can't be mended. Burns that can't be tended to. And tears that can't be wiped away. Many times we hurt longer. We're cut deeper and disabled worse from things that wound us emotionally than anything that physical wounds could ever inflict. And many people in this room may know that. But our Lord has designed within us a resilience to tolerate an even greater amount of affliction in this area, I think, than in our physical manner. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many a man and woman bearing up among the pains and wounds and scars of battered emotions find solace in this promise, and I certainly have in my day. Here again, though there are limits that we can endure without breakdown if we don't deal with these things. Even Jesus Christ our Lord in the garden suffered great distress. Marching back and forth from his prayer time with his father to his, to his companions. Can you just see the anxiety in him? Sweat drops like great drops of blood. Knowing that what was coming, they were going to deliver him to the tortures to endure the cruelest treatment imaginable. And then an unjust death sentence. So, we should both welcome and embrace tolerance as a part of life and in my mind understand that God has designed similar tolerances for the body. This body of Christ, the one that we are part of here. Into his church and even into its doctrines. I don't see anybody throwing anything at me yet. That's good. What is built into our spiritual DNA is something that Tom... I'm sorry. It's not Tom. It's Richard. Known him for a while now. Richard kind of went over his, his lesson today because I guess Josh covered it very well in First uh, John chapter 4. This thing called love. It's not a crazy little thing called love. In the world it is. This is an amazing thing called love. 
And it's critical for us. 1 John chapter 4, 16 and 17. And you have known and believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have, been, have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so we are in the world. Ooh. Really. Remember, Jesus demonstrated God's love for the world, even those who hated him, even when his enemies were facing him down. And he has called us to do the same. Remember the reading we had a little earlier. It is assumed that we have embraced a true and proper love for those around us, just as God prescribed, even our enemies. And by confession... The farther that our world gets away from a Judeo-Christian leaning, the more intolerant I become to the plight of those so inclined, resulting in a lower estimation or a lower valuation for the world around me, thereby more enemies. But go back and see Matthew chapter 5. Love your enemies. So I don't get them off the list by not liking them. I don't get any lesser obligation. I don't get out of anything. I just have to have more tolerance, don't I? More tolerance. We are taught by Jesus that this will be the signs of the last time. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And he who endures to the end shall be saved. Brethren, we need to guard against the temptation to grow cold because this is where the Lord would have us if no place else to shine as lights in the world of darkness for his sake and as bondservants of God. There are attributes and characteristics of true love that manifest tolerance from each of us as a natural result. I know that I'm just be patient with you. You've probably seen this. I've got great Bible students in here, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7, trying to make a point. Love suffers long in his kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not become, uh, behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We as the organism, as this body of Christ, we are to bend and to flex and to do, endure and to bear up and to absorb a great deal of what is cast on us from those around us. But within the limits of the design of this scriptural, spiritual structure, this temple of God, this holy city. Now, did anyone notice what I left out when I read that passage? I didn't, please. I left out verse 6. Went right over it. Remember what we had before. Honor all men, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. In the midst of all this, bend over and twist and turn and take all this is right here. But love does not rejoice in iniquity, but enjoys it, rejoices in the truth. There's that balance right there. We don't get a stepping stone off into the abyss. We cannot rejoice in the iniquity of those to whom we are called to love, and we are to love the truth, dare I say more, than what binds us otherwise. 
We need to thank God for his masterful construction of this great institution that we are all, I think, a part, many of us are at least. But it also needs our care that it is used for its proper intention. And if we want it to thrive, if we want it to be recognizable as it should be, then we must embrace the principles of care and of maintenance that are necessary for many other far less essential structures of man. We are not the architect or the master builder, and we have no right to make material changes to his design. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 through 13, Paul says, We are God's fellow workers, that is the apostles, I believe, not us, and you, we, are God's field, you are God's building, his church, that's us. According to the grace of God, has been given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and other builds on it. But let each one take care how he builds on it. So there the plans have been stamped. The professionals have done their thing. It's sealed. He says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so the limits and dimensions and everything and all the amount of concrete and steel that's going into it has been determined. Okay? And each one's work will become clear in the day. will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. One of my only other phobias, by the way, is fire. I think that's a good, healthy one to have fear of, don't you? And the fire will test each one's work and what sort it is, so the materials and workmanship of us all will be tested. It matters what we build upon that foundation of Jesus Christ, brethren. It matters a great deal. Back in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, God had demands for precision back then, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern for the tabernacle and the pattern for all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And that was for a tent with no foundation of wood and curtains. Imagine what he intends when the foundation is his son Jesus Christ, what he expects it to be built upon and made of. I think it's interesting that everything that was part of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, when all that work is tested with fire, each man's work is going to be revealed. And the things that were made in that tabernacle were made of, they're going to burn. The things that are built upon the foundation of Christ, I believe, should endure. Jewels, gold, things that could be put to the heat and not ruined by it, but better, more refined. So, how much tolerance should we have and how much tolerance should we, do we think the Lord allows in the things that we approve? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So, how much tolerance does God have for falsehood and truth? How much dishonor and nobility, or corruption and justice, or defilement and purity, or lewdness and loveliness, or poor reputation and good report, or worthlessness and virtue, or idleness and praiseworthy? How much? A little rhetorical, wasn't it? In order for me to honor all men in the manner that typically they would ultimately require, I would have to compromise all these things to meet that requirement. 
That's what makes it hard. Paul taught us that he would try to accomplish it, but only to a point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 22, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who were under the law, as under the law, as under the law, as under law, though not being myself under the law, that I may win those who are under law, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. What did poor Paul have to endure? Those who were bound up in their traditions, in, the, in, in their recently obsolete religious tra- traditions that had been pounded into them from birth, societies that were embraced, had embraced idolatry and icon worship, groping for any god that they could think would answer them. Heathen and pagans that had no intentions of reform because of the sensual pleasures of their practices. These are the things that Paul tolerated. Yet what did he put up with? Note his efforts to reach the lost were limited by this point, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Paul attempted to by all means save some, But what would he save them to or from if he disregarded the law of God through Christ as a means to the end? There's a profound difference between taking oneself down to the place where they can relate to the lost from their perspective and bringing the truth down to the place where it matches their perspective. We can win no one to the truth if we allow it to become something else. I would love to honor all men. I would love to be friendly with all men. And I would love probably oh, I don't know. Probably not. As much as I think I would to have been born another hundred years earlier. I don't think it was that much better. I don't think so. The differences may have been Narrower, but truth is truth, is it not? There's always been the chasm. It doesn't matter if it's just a stepping stone away. It's still a chasm. And it can't be bridged if it's not the truth. I think we live in a time where it's broadening and it's probably ultimately going to make it easier to tell the difference. I have endeavored to portray a tolerance that we need to live reasonably useful lives and the flexibility that we need to have as Christians and the adversity and the diversity of the things and the, and the potential that we have to face adversity in our, in our life. The problem is the world is screaming for more tolerance. An acceptance from the Christian community which translates to a compromised truth and to structural changes to the Lord's church and, dare I say, to erect temples to demons. There's as much interest, I think, in breaking down fundamental Christianity as there is to legalizing causes that are clearly contrary to God's will. Our society prides itself in becoming more enlightened, more accepting, and more inclusive. 
just queue up the recent Supreme Court decision on marriage. It's usually okay. You know, usually Christians can just opt out of the new found right or freedom, right? I don't have to get an abortion. I don't have to live in a fornicating lifestyle. I don't have to do most of those things. I don't have to smoke marijuana in Colorado. I don't have to... I don't have to do these things. But when I have to recognize or when somebody forces us to recognize things that are absolutely contrary to God's will, if not nature, and to call our opposition to those things a hate crime, that's going to be a problem someday, brethren. It's going to be. We have to make a stand then. You know, the church wasn't popular back in Jesus' day. Paul wasn't popular. Churches didn't enjoy a special tax status. They weren't recognized by their big, beautiful buildings. They weren't protected by the Constitution. It was a totally different world back then. And you know, I I think that as we face these things anew, probably for the first time in our lifetime, if society enacts laws contrary to the laws of God, not to mention nature, we can't flex on these things. But I'm awful afraid that as soon as the tax status and the ability to congregate, as these things are threatened, in many cases it will be rationalized as obeying authority doing the right thing by being authority. Oh, I can turn to Romans chapter 13 and say, I've got to do this. But I don't think that's right at all. Not at all. That's how many churches that require congregation, require that gathering to be a church, that's what they'll do. They'll cave. The Lord's church is not like that. It's like Mercury. Try to pick up the Lord's church. Try to apprehend the Lord's church. It's like Mercury. We can food and fellowship all day long. Every week. The Lord's church can't be can't be broken up by shutting this building down. Anyway, I digress. I believe though, instead of rationalizing Romans thirteen to crazy federal laws, that there's a higher calling when we are so threatened. And I think it was demonstrated by Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Verses 18 through 20, And they called them, the council called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, if this is a good example that's been laid down by the apostles, a pattern for us to follow, this isn't a one or done. We don't get our Barrett badge and get to go back into our foxhole and don't do this anymore. Unfortunately, we don't get to. Well, they do. By the time we get to chapter 5, they bring it before the Catholic and says, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Yes, absolutely. That's what they're trying to do. 
They're trying to bring this man's blood upon them. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. So let me ask you, can anybody see the essence of honoring all men in their response here? Can you see them honoring the council? Peter has fixed evaluation on these people, although they resent it, risking his own well-being to bring the blood of Jesus Christ on these people. He has a higher value for these people than they have for themselves. And in the meantime, he has honored them with his vocal response far more than he would have by compliance and silence. He essentially has preached the gospel to these people as a response to their demand for them to cease and desist. That's what he's done. In the process, he's also demonstrated his exceeding reverence for God. We ought to obey God rather than man. We cannot but speak these things. They were witness to these things and they were compelled to testify the truth which had been entrusted to their care. And no repeated threats of bodily harm, real or imagined, would prevent them presenting their awesome God to those who they were empowered to spread the gospel with. We could go on, but we're out of time. I will only state that it's not just Peter, but Paul himself who speaks of having borne the brand marks of Jesus Christ in his body. He bore those marks. That poor man was battered. Why? Because he honored those people and he feared God. Amazing examples for us. Amazing examples. So indeed, honor all men. Love the brethren. Fear God. Honor the King. Let's not write any songs about our president for our songbook. Wasn't that amazing? That made it into a praise book. President Pope? Really? Am I supposed to give an invitation? I'm not leading a song. <laughs> Anybody that knows me, there will be five of us here, and all other, the rest will be ladies. I'm sorry, I didn't hear it. 969? 969 is, is the closing hand. So I have given you, probably in my estimation, is good a representation of the gospel as we need here. We are speaking of Jesus Christ, the one who came. He came to demonstrate His love, the Father's love, 
by honoring us all, even when we weren't worthy of his honor. When we were among those, essentially, who put him to death. And he faced down that death so that he could save us, so that we could be here today, so we could be counted among those who were his children. So we had the opportunity to be with him where he is now. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and far beyond, and forgiveness of sins. If you read this book, you are witnesses to these things in your own life. If you have this need to come before this number here and to confess that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for your sins and he rose and he's at the right hand of God preparing a place for you after he's forgiven you of your sins, then please, by all means, take advantage of this opportunity among these witnesses to do so as we stand and sing that song that's been prepared or selected.